Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. With that, I want to now transition into the message for today. And I want to read the passage, I'll introduce the, the, the title and the passage, and then I want to share with you a little why this is what I want to preach on. The title of the message is Our Struggle. And it's part of a series that I like to do on this topic of spiritual warfare. And the passage I'm going to draw from is Ephesians 6, 10 to 12. And I want to hop back and forth around different parts of that passage and explore what the nature of spiritual warfare is. But I want to first start by sharing why I started to think about this at all. Um, it was not that long ago. I was flying out of Newark Airport in New Jersey. And... Normally, I don't like to eat when I'm traveling. Like, I, I'm not an airport eater. But that day, maybe, I don't know if I, I can't remember if I ate very much at the, the place I was speaking at, but I was starving by the time I got to the airport. But I didn't have a large window of time before I had to catch my flight. I had about 20 minutes before I was boarding. And as I walked past the food court, these delicious smells were wafting out of that place, and it just got my stomach going. So I was like, you know, I really want to eat some proper food before I get on the flight. I don't like carrying food onto the plane. I spill a lot on myself, so I just like, I want to eat something quick. And so I looked for a McDonald's. There was none. But there were all these other burger places, pizza places, and there were probably seven or eight places in this food court, and each one had a long line. And when I asked people, how long have you been waiting for your food? They said, about 10, 12 minutes. And I did the math and I realized that no matter which line I stood in, it would be at least five to seven minutes before I got to the line and then another, and I wasn't going to make it. And I was so disappointed because this is the first time I've been that hungry at an airport and I did not have the opportunity to eat. And I joked, there's no one to tell, but I said to myself, I just remember saying this very clearly, this is spiritual battle. This is spiritual warfare. And I kind of chuckled to myself, and I, I knew what I was saying was silly because, um, and I wonder, have you ever done that? Have you ever had an obstacle or a hiccup, an annoyance in your life? And you find yourself just chuckling and, and passing it off as spiritual warfare. And that got me thinking, it, it sent me down on this whole rabbit trail of what exactly is the nature of spiritual warfare? I said it kind of tongue-in-cheek. But it got me thinking in the weeks since, just exactly what is it and how much does it truly impact our day-to-day lives? How much of what we experience is just life in a broken world and how much of it represents manifestations of spiritual warfare? Now, I know this is not a neutral topic. Depending on what church tradition you grew up in, you might have a huge range of experiences related to this. Some people have come from wild and woolly places where it comes to spiritual warfare. They had almost borderline Harry Potter type experiences of um, throwing power and authority around rooms and casting demons out. And others, they don't even believe that that stuff is real. And so I think it's important as Christians... Because the Bible addresses it quite a bit that we get some clarity on what we believe together about the nature of spiritual warfare and to what extent it actually touches our day-to-day lives. 
So I, I, I got into this whole thing of studying about it, dwelling on it, and it turned into not just a, a personal study, but into a, a series of messages. And so in the weeks ahead, I want to explore this topic with you in a way that I hope will turn into a, a church-wide conversation. I want to encourage you in your own small group settings to talk about your own experiences and your own views on what this is, and to dig into this passage and the other ones we refer to, and engage in some study, because I think, and I'm convinced of this, that the spiritual realm affects us way more than we give it credit for. And in this passage in particular, Paul is extremely clear that he agrees with that view. That there is far more impact from the spiritual realm on our everyday lives than we usually acknowledge. Today I want to focus on verses 10 to 12, and I want to outline the nature of this struggle we find ourselves in that we call spiritual warfare. In chapter 6, verses 10 to 12, this is what Paul writes. Whoops. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms." I think few of us would deny that conflict is an inevitable and inescapable part of life in a fallen world. We experience conflict almost every day in some form or another, maybe with a fellow um, driver on the road, maybe with someone we live with in our homes, maybe if we have children, we have conflict between children and parents. We also have conflict not just with people, but with ideas, ideologies, systems, worldviews, situations, huge forces bigger than ourselves, weather, economies, war, political decisions, crime. There are things that are much bigger than us, and there are forces aligned in this world that oppose us at, at, at regular points in our lives. And so when you look at the world... It's no mystery that conflict is a part of being alive. Some of us are embroiled in personal conflicts right now in some form in our lives. Chances are many of us are in that situation. And a lot of the conflict that shows up in our life materializes in the natural visible world. And that's, that's the, the realm that we're most comfortable and familiar with as people in the modern West. The natural world we might describe and in some church circles, they will just refer to this as the natural. Uh, are you talking about this in the natural or in the supernatural? The natural is that tangible, visible realm of existence, things that we can see and touch, understand, and even manipulate or control. It's the world that we can't, it's tactile, it's immediate, and it's the thing that feels material. So we, many people, especially rationalists, will say that that's the only true reality that we recognize. That is what is real. If you can't touch it, if you can't measure it, if you can't see it, then it's mostly imagined. It's not really happening. It's not affecting us. And that's a pretty common view, both in and out of the church. 
I think there are good reasons why people would believe that, but if we read the New Testament and the Old Testament carefully, there's really no way to support such a view. The Old Testament does talk about spiritual battle and about our enemy, but by the time Jesus arrives on the scene and we enter the New Testament, that language ratchets up exponentially. You cannot read the New Testament and not notice how often it talks about the way that the spiritual, invisible, supernatural realm intersects with this visible, natural world that we see. You know, when you think about the conflict in your life, the struggles or battles you find yourself embroiled in, usually we will locate those conflicts in the natural. We think about actual people or groups of people who have made our lives difficult, who oppose us or irritate us or offend us. We think about these forces like the economy or our occupational challenges or our social problems, maybe even medical and health challenges that feel so embodied in this world of flesh and blood that that's the place where we mostly think about and interact with the conflicts in our existence. But what Paul says really clearly is, though that is a part of the struggle in your life, that is not the full story. Underneath, lying behind those flesh and blood struggles, is another struggle that he would refer to, I believe, as the true struggle. It's the story behind the story. And we often reason that because we experience our conflicts and our struggles mostly in the natural flesh and blood world... We reason maybe that if we could just deal with those flesh and blood enemies, if we could get those people to stop being like that to us, if we could just get over or get past these other challenges we're facing, if I could just get past this illness, if I could just get another job, if I could, and we think if I could just get all those material enemies taken care of, then my inner life would be at peace. That I could finally rest and breathe and have well-being. But what Paul is revealing to us is that that is not the case, that even though our material worlds are well and at peace, that doesn't erase the conflict in our existence because we actually have a supernatural enemy who is always at work relentlessly after us. And so even if you deal with every single one of the flesh and blood enemies and battles in your life, that will not erase the conflict in your soul. Something else is at work here on top of the natural world. And what Paul reveals to us is that the real struggle that our lives are embroiled in is not simply against these flesh and blood enemies, but against what he calls rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world. That refers to systems and large forces arraigned against God and his people. It refers to those who are agents of the enemy, but then he really reveals the ultimate underlying source, and that is the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's kind of fancy biblical language to address the fact that we have an enemy whose existence is largely in the supernatural world, and he intersects with the world that we occupy. This enemy of ours largely operates in the supernatural or spiritual realm. And we have to acknowledge his existence because not not paying attention to him does not nullify his action in our life. His name is Satan. 
I can't, in my generation, I can't hear that without thinking of Dana Carvey's church lady skit on Saturday Night Live. Any of you old enough to remember that? <laughs> yeah. Or, or the phrase, not today, Satan. You know, we have turned Satan into kind of a cartoon character in our day. Some people, they, they, we waver back and forth, right? The two extremes are one, we're terrified of him. We think that he is God's equal and opposite power, that he's the same as God, only dark and evil. Or others say he's just a vestige of ancient primitive human society. He's not real. He doesn't exist. C.S. Lewis, in his preface to the, the book, The Screwtape Letters, said, there are two errors that we hold about the devil. One is that we think about him too much, and the other is that we don't think of him at all. And he says the devil is happy with both of those errors because it frees him to play and to wreak havoc on our lives. The thing we have to do together as Christ followers is at least to acknowledge his existence and begin to understand how he operates and what drives him. As we do a study in scripture of Satan, what we discover is that he is a fallen created being and that he is driven and filled with bitterness, violence, dishonesty, and hatred. He hates God with his whole being. He hates everything God has done to him. He hates everything God stands for. He hates everything God does. And by extension, he hates the people that God has made. And he hates the societies and the systems that God's people build. Everything he does is driven by this hatred. And what he wants more than anything is to unravel and undo and oppose the work of God in this created world. He will do that in the natural world. He will do that in the supernatural realm. He will do that in every opportunity he's given. He is driven by just one mission. And some of us are like, I know a person like that. You, know, you don't. I promise you. Every other person you know who you think is evil is nothing compared to this enemy. And this enemy hates you and he hates me with his whole heart. First Peter 5.8 I'm sorry, that, I, I don't know if we have the slide for this, but 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter is writing to scattered Christians who are experiencing persecution. And what Peter says to them is, Never let your guard down because in this spiritual warfare, this enemy of ours is hardly neutral or passive about it. He's not just an opportunist waiting for an opening. He is actively looking for an opening. Actively looking. He's like a good linebacker constantly scanning the, the offensive line, looking for where that run might come from, where that hole might be punched. Do you remember Mike Singletary's eyes? Anybody remember the Mike Singletary years of the Bears? And they always close in on his eyes just like this. You just felt like you could not run against this guy because he is not going to miss a thing. And that's the kind of look that I think of when I read this verse. That this adversary of ours is relentless in his search for an opening. And he says his end goal is to devour us. He doesn't just want to harm us or annoy us or delay us or inconvenience us. He wants to devour us. That is a word for consuming the essence of what makes us us. 
of scooping out that part of us that makes us want to be alive, to keep moving forward, to take away that core in us that wants to wake up in the morning and have hope and, and a desire. He wants to scoop that out. He wants to destroy our eternal uh, destiny. He wants to undo all the good work which God is doing in the process of redeeming us and just leave us in heaps of ashes on the floor of this broken and messed up world. That is what would delight him more than anything. And he wants that because that's his destiny. Many of you know people, maybe you've experienced a similar dynamic in your own life, people who have lost a lot and because of it it's, it's bred a bitterness and it's taken away any ability to be happy for others. They just want others to share the misery that they've had to endure. I understand very well why a person would be driven like that. Satan lost everything. And unlike us, there's no pathway for redemption for him. He does not have a means by which he can re reconcile with God. Everything Satan has lost is lost to him forever. And the idea of it, the existential regret of it, the frustration of that situation fuels that hatred, and he would love nothing better than that none of us ever get to experience the fullness of life and redemption, which God has planned for us as well. We often think that, yes, even those of us who acknowledge the existence of the supernatural realm, we think to ourselves, well, surely it only intersects infrequently. And so we'll do what maybe I did. When there's an extraordinary situation where it feels like everything is lined up against us, or when that person who we have enmity with is particularly toxic, we think, oh, this is spiritual warfare. This is the demonic entering the world. This is a particular unusual episode. And so then that's when we, some of us might be, be tempted to say, that is spiritual battle. But the reality that Paul is describing to us the reality that Peter is also describing to us is that that's not the case. The supernatural and the natural don't just periodically intersect. They actually overlap far more than we realize. That in this natural world in which we are bound to have our full existence, there is at the same time always a supernatural dimension which we may not always be aware of but is nonetheless at operation underneath that visible layer and it never ever goes away. Now, this is not a denial that our flesh and blood enemies are real. It's not an invitation to ignore those problems and just spiritualize them. We have to deal with those conflicts in our lives. We have to make things right with the people that we're in enmity with. We have to try to heal the relationships that are broken. We need to seek and give forgiveness. If we have medical problems, we need to get the help that we need. Whatever flesh and blood enemies we're facing in the natural, the aim is not to deny those things or wave them away in some hyper-spiritualized worldview, but it is to add to that this real dimension that there is a supernatural world at work all around us. That realm is as real as the natural that we see. And the more we get to understand it and interact with it, the more we will experience health, wellness, and victory in the, in the places where our lives spring out from. To ignore it is to believe that the shell of us is the only part that exists and that that deep part within doesn't have any real power. The truth is that the conflicts that we experience in the natural, the the flesh and blood enemies we wrestle against, 
Those things are not particularly surprising when you consider that we live in a world scarred and damaged by our sin and by the sins of other people. It's not particularly surprising. You know, there's this trend I see on social media where gangs of young people are just rampaging through stores in those states where now you can safely um, shoplift up to $1,000 worth of merchandise without much of a penalty. It's happening in Chicago. It's happening in San Francisco, Oakland, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Atlanta. It's become a whole social media trend where these kids just go wilding and ransacking stores and not even sneaking about, just in broad daylight. And we see things like that. (coughs) Excuse me. And we think, should we be surprised by that? Should we be surprised that in a world so fueled by the brokenness of our sin and the sins of others, things like that happen? I'm actually surprised it doesn't happen more often. The right view of our flesh and blood enemies is that that's not the particularly surprising thing in this world. That it is part of what it means to live in this damaged reality. But what Paul is trying to tell us is, in the midst of that unsurprising conflict you find yourself in, in flesh and blood, there is a deeper battle that really matters. And that's the part that he really wants us to be aware of, because that's the battle that far outlasts the outcomes of our flesh and blood battles. You might reconcile that relationship. You might get the job that you were passed over for. You might get past your financial woes, and you might even be healed of that disease, but that doesn't erase the conflict that you find yourself embroiled in. Underneath that is another layer of struggle, and that's the one that ultimately determines our long-term well-being and our eternal well-being. Paul gives a nod to this idea in 1 Thessalonians. He was writing a letter to this church that... He really wanted to revisit. He had planted this church, and he really wanted to revisit them so that he could strengthen them and encourage them, and he was thwarted attempt after attempt after attempt. In fact, what he says is, Satan hindered us. He blocked us from coming to you. Each time we made travel plans to go, some unstoppable force got in our way, and we could not get over to see you. So in 1 Corinthians 2, he shares this story in verse 18. We tried to get to you, But Satan directly blocked our travel plan. So what that tells us is Satan doesn't just operate in the supernatural. He can actually thwart the things that we try to do in this material world too. I didn't realize that when I wanted to visit someone and all of a sudden during that one week I could go, the airline prices skyrocket, that that might actually be the enemy at work too. But he says, here's the thing though. That hindrance is not the real story. The real concern we had was not that we couldn't come to you, but that in the time that we couldn't come to you, that this spiritual enemy would move into that open space and tempt you. What he's saying is that these flesh and blood battles, look at how he writes about it in First Thessalonians 3. I don't think we have the slide for it. I think I updated it a little too late, so the, I apologize to the team. But track with me as I read these, these, these verses. 1 Thessalonians 3, 3 to 5 says this. No one should be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. What what is Paul saying there? He says, don't be shocked when you have opposition, when you experience or encounter flesh and blood enemies, when people are not good to you, 
When plans don't work out, don't be shocked at this. This is part of life in a world marked by conflict and sin. And we are destined for it. It's part of our calling. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Now listen to this. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, and what he's saying is, I I kept worrying about you, wondering how you're doing spiritually, and when I couldn't bear it any longer, and I obviously couldn't come, I sent my assistant Timothy to check on your condition. I sent him to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. What Paul is saying is that the real concern is not that these flesh and blood oppositions would discourage us and defeat us, but that somehow in the process of fighting these earthly battles, our souls would be discouraged, our souls would be defeated, and that part deep within us would give up the fight. You know, there are two layers at which you can fight for your life. There is that flesh and blood layer, which most of us are fairly expert by this stage of our lives in navigating. You don't need a pastor to tell you how to deal with your earthly problems, right? I mean, I'm trusting that you are grown adults and you have your own ways of coping with these challenges living in this world. But he says this, the the pastoral part is this, there's this other battle going on that we so often miss. And that's the battle where the stakes are the highest. It's not just how you fare through the struggle, but what the struggle does to your spirit. That's the real story. Is it leading you towards God or away from Him? Because that's the real battle that exists in the heavenly realms. Everyone experiences hardship, but for some that hardship turns them to God in dependence. And for others, it embitters them against God. They assign blame to God. They feel left alone, left unintended, and they turn their backs against God. And what Paul is trying to get us to see is this is, in fact, the story which concerns the heart of God the most. It's not whether you will get through that struggle, but whether that struggle will lead you towards God or away from God. That is ultimately the eternal story of our existence. This dynamic is really well captured for us in the Old Testament book of Job. And a lot of scholars believe that Job is the most ancient writing contained in the whole Bible. It may be older than the rest of Scripture by a thousand years or more. And in this ancient story, it could be allegorical, it could be historical. I think an argument could be made for either. But the value of this book doesn't rest in whether it's actually literal and historical or whether it's an allegory. It's a powerful story for us about what is happening in the supernatural realm as we experience natural trials. It depicts a conversation going on in the supernatural realm between God and Satan. And in this casual conversation between God and his arch enemy, God looks at Satan and goes, where you been? Where are you coming from? And Satan goes, I've just been walking around the world causing trouble. And then God says to him, hey, Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? God's having one of those days like many parents do when one of your kids is just behaving so well. You're like, man, I like that kid. So proud to be a daddy right now. That's my son. That's my daughter. And you just feel good about it. He's having one of those days. He's looking at Job just happily running around doing all the right things. And he goes, hey, Satan, look at this guy. Look at him. 
Have you considered my boy Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. God is boasting on his kid and his impeccable character and his righteousness. And the response of Satan reveals a lot about what makes his heart tick, what he's feeling inside. Satan responds to God, Duh! You think Job fears you for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan's worldview is that the only reason people like God or do the right thing or are happy is because everything in their lives are going well. Who wouldn't be a good guy if everything they wanted was theirs, if everything they planned worked out? Who wouldn't honor you, God? And his argument is everyone who stays faithful to God is a fair-weather friend of God. That the only reason we stick with God is because God stuck with us, so we think. The only reason a person would remain faithful to God is because life is good. You know, there was an elder in our church a long time ago who would start all the services by saying, God is good. We were compelled to say back, all the time. And then he would say, all the time. We would say, God is good. But I think it's so true. The biblical worldview is that God is good all the time, but Satan's worldview is he agrees with those who, who say this. God is only good when life is good. And when life is bad, God is bad. And if we have that worldview, then our relationship with God and our spiritual well-being is actually rooted only to our circumstances. So we'll have good days and bad days, and God will have good days and bad days. And this is the idea that Satan promotes, that no one who is faithful to you, God, is faithful just because of you. They're ultimately faithful because you gave them the things that their hearts ultimately want. You are nothing more than a means to the end which really drives their hearts. And if you take away those goodies, they're not going to like you. Parents, try that experiment. See how much... Go, Kids, do you love us? Yeah. Give us your phones. Give us your iPads. We're going to take some of these things away for a little while. See if they still love you. They love you, but they're going to love you through gritted teeth. And that's what Satan believes every human heart is about. And so he, he says, let's put him to the test. Why don't you take away all the goodies, see if Job is still so worthy of boasting about. And so God does an unexpected thing. was fine. Go ahead and do your worst. Let's have a little experiment. Do you remember the old movie Trading Places where these guys do a social experiment playing with people's lives? Eddie Murphy's life in particular. That's basically the situation. They turned this Bible story into a movie. Let's see what happens if we mess with and pull the different levers in someone's life and see if their heart remains true. And so what God does is he gives Satan freedom within parameters. He says, you can go mess with Job, just don't kill him. As long as you keep him alive, go ahead and, and try your worst. And so that's what he does. And Satan demonstrates the full extent of his bitterness and hatred. He doesn't just mess a little bit with Job. He devastates this man. He puts to death every single one of his descendants. He loses all his family. 
In the ancient world, your children were your ultimate wealth. They were the thing that made you want to get up in the morning. And in, in, in a series of catastrophes, he lost all of them. And then he got rid of all his property, burned down and destroyed all of his wealth. He killed his livestock. And so now he's hit this man at two of the most sacred places where we hold our treasures, our family and our, our money. You take away those two things on an average churchgoer in America and consider what would happen to their relationship with God. If overnight your family was destroyed and all your wealth was lost, how would you feel about this God tomorrow? And I'm not just talking about you. I'm asking myself. I think that would be extremely challenging. But there's one last frontier with which he can mess with a person. He goes, that's all still stuff outside of you. It's not you who died. It's your kids. It's just your money. You can make more. But what about you yourself? Can we mess with you a little bit? And so in a second conversation, God goes, fine, go ahead and touch Job's body. See what happens. And so he afflicts him with the worst kind of grotesque illness, skin diseases, and these, these putrefying sores to the point where Job is sitting there picking at his scabs with shards of broken pottery. He's miserable. This is a broken, unraveled man. Everything we hold dear, he has lost. And Satan was absolutely sure that these struggles in the natural would destroy this man in the supernatural. He was absolutely convinced that if you take away every goodie in the physical material world, this man has no reason to hold fast to God. And yet what it says in Scripture is that in all of this, Job did not sin by turning against God. He even got a hugely strained relationship with his wife. His wife was like, you're so stupid for believing God. He's abandoned you, you idiot. Curse God and die. That's pretty bad when your own wife said, just curse God and die, you fool. Why do you continue to hold on to this insane hope in a God who has obviously abandoned you? She lost her kids too. She lost her wealth too. It went a very different way with her. And then his friends trying to help came in and said, what'd you do wrong, Job? Don't you love friends like that? What, what did you contribute to this? Why is this happening to you, I wonder? Hmm. Because good people usually don't experience stuff like this. And so even with his friends, he's having a strained relationship. They're creating confusion, self-doubt. And in all of this, he was absolutely convinced that if I mess with a person's flesh and blood life in the supernatural realm, their spirits will come undone. This was the real battle. And what God demonstrated is that he can fight for us in this supernatural realm just as much as Satan could fight against us. And that it's possible even though your material world is crumbling all around you, that it's not a given that you have to give up on God. That you don't have to interpret those troubles as God abandoning you or being unfair to you or turning your, his back on you. But that these are invitations to cling zealously to God in spite of the fact that this world has offered you no tangible reason to do so. That At that point, the only reason you have to cling to God is God himself and what he's done in your life and what he's revealed to you about himself and how he feels for you. Now, for Job living in the, in the ancient world, this was very difficult to conceive of. But for us who live on the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ, we have such a tangible expression of what God feels for us. John 3.16, which is probably the most recognized Bible verse in the world, says that God loved you and me so much 
that he willingly forfeited his only son so that whoever would put their trust in him, believe in him, would not die ever again, but would have everlasting life. If ever there was a demonstration of the way God truly feels about us, he does not need to point to anything more than the cross of Jesus Christ. We have this great symbol of hope to remind us that no matter what else is being lost in this material world, we can still hang on to and win this supernatural battle for our souls because God is good in Christ all the time. And this season of suffering and conflict will pass, and yet I will stand. Job, later in that book, says, Though my flesh it, it, it is corrupted, it tears away, yet in the end I will see God. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives. And I trust Him for that. Brothers and sisters, think about the flesh and blood enemies you're facing right now about the great battles that you face in this world. It may sound silly, but one of the battles we're fighting right now is that we bought a new house, believing it was a seller's market, and we put our old house on the market, and no one, tons of showings, no one's putting an offer. And we're now terrified that we're going to own two houses. I don't have that kind of money. And so we're fighting this battle pulling every lever we can, trying to say, how can we make our house more attractive? How can we? we were lowering the price, and we're worried, and it's pulling at our hearts, at our souls. I know that sounds like a very small battle in the grand scheme of things, and it's certainly smaller than a lot of what you guys are facing. But every day we face these flesh and blood battles, forces bigger than ourselves, things that we actually can't control, but they affect us right where we live. And the real question is not what was going to happen in this situation, but what will this situation produce in the supernatural spiritual realm? And I want to confess to you that on some days I find it pulls us toward faith. And on other days, it pulls us towards fear. I wish I could boast and say to you, the whole time I've been absolutely confident, but some days I've woken up in the morning going, oh Lord, we're going to go broke. We made a terrible mistake. And other days I wake up and say, God is in control. And I realize that that sentiment is where the real battle is being fought after all. This house will get sold or I will be in ruination, one or the other. Either way, I'm going to make it forward. I'll have a life on the other side of this issue. But the real story is what happens to my soul. And the real story is what happens to yours. So I'm going to invite you in these last minutes Pause and think about the battles you find yourself in right now. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a big decision or disappointment. Maybe it's it's a, a worldview that has grieved you. I think for some of us, the battles we're fighting are huge right now. Those flesh and blood enemies seem insurmountable. I want you to know that in the midst of that battle you're fighting against another perceived enemy. There's this being named Satan whose name in Hebrew literally means adversary, the one who opposes us. And his great aim right now in your life is to take these struggles 
and use them to undo the work of God in your life, to say, to lead your soul to say, I don't think I care anymore about a God who doesn't care about me. That statement may feel true, but it is a lie. In weeks to come, we'll describe, explore the methods, the schemes that Satan uses to discourage and unravel us. But lying is one of his favorites. Jesus revealed to us in John 8 that Satan is the father of lies. When he lies, he speaks his native language. This enemy you're facing is not the only enemy. In fact, he's not even, it's not even the true enemy. You have an enemy who hates your soul. And his whole aim is to undo and unravel the blessings and work of God in you. Don't hand him an easy win. Turn towards God and not away. Give God a fair chance to reveal himself again to you. Don't harden your soul. Don't embitter your spirit. Can I just invite you in this moment of quiet to have your own personal, private response to God in this moment because he alone knows everything you're facing. So let's just take a moment of quiet. We cannot fight an enemy whose existence we don't acknowledge. Paul had to write these words because it seems a simple truth, but it's the one we forget so easily. Our flesh and blood enemies grieve us and offend us and hurt us so deeply. We feel sure that this is our true enemy. This is the one ruining my life. This is that thing that if only I could just get past this, everything would be okay. Let the word of God remind you today that that is not your real enemy. Oh, you have an enemy who hates you. And you have a God who loves you. And both this enemy and this God fill and occupy the supernatural realm. And they fill and occupy this natural realm. And they are at war over you. You're not just a ping pong ball to be swatted back and forth by two enemies. But you have a choice in this fight. Will you let the enemy have his way? Or like Job, will you say, nevertheless, even still, even if this present trouble continues. I will turn towards God and not away. I will not blame God for the troubles of my life, but I will seek God as the only real hope I have in the face of the troubles of this life. And even if my flesh and my blood do not survive this battle, Lord, hold my soul. On top of everything else, I am threatened with losing. Don't let me lose my faith or my relationship with you. God is waiting. He wants that invitation 
And He wants to help us in the fight. Would you open your heart to Him? God, we pray as so many in our church are facing really massive struggles in this flesh and blood world. We have real enemies in the material world. And those enemies have cost us so much. And yet, we believe today, we choose to believe your word tells the truth. That those enemies are not the whole story, but we have a greater enemy still. And we want you to win the battle for our spirits. Hold us fast to you, even when everything in the world feels like we're losing. Win the fight for our spirits. Help us hang on to our faith in you when the world gives us no reason to do it. Come fight for us. Be our defender, our refuge, our strong tower. Be our champion. And in the face of all these trials, God, win the fight for our souls. We pray this in dependence on you, knowing that you're the only one who can sway the outcome of this fight in the end. Fight for those who cannot fight for themselves. Pull at their spirits. Beckon them towards you. Show them how open your arms are. And bring them home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We should never minimize the struggles that we experience in flesh and blood. They are costly. They are so painful and difficult. And God knows what you have gone through. He has not ever turned his back on you. He sees in ways that none of us can see everything you've carried. His great heart for you is not simply that you would conquer those battles, but that through it all you will see that he is the one who most loves you. He is for you. Your life is better when you have hope in him. That no matter what this world takes from you or what it costs you, you will never lose the God who loves you. Hold on to him. He is holding on to you. He will never turn his back on you. May this God who fights for us, who knows every sorrow and pain that we endure, and who has guaranteed the victory, now have dominion over you and over me. May he give that peace which the world cannot give. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, be blessed now and forever. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.